Welcome to episode 27 of the PTSD Academy podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dan. Today's episode is entitled The Warrior Class, Caregiver's Guide to PTSD. That is the title of a Lulu book that I have that goes along with the video course online. It's designed for professionals, psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, prescribers, as well as therapists and counselors. Most of it is counseling and psychology and oriented but I get down to the level of medications as well in doses and risks and benefit ratios, stuff like that for, for the professional. But what I found in my experience is that caregivers like to know too. Sometimes family members like to know. Patients themselves like to know what the doctors are thinking from time to time because when they don't know about the risk factors. You know, modern medicine's gotten so fast that there's not time in a standard practice for physicians to be able to adequately give informed consent for all the medications. And while it's a responsibility of the physicians to do that, there is such thing as being set up for failure when you're in a system where it takes too long to explain things to patients and you're running late into your appointments and it throws off your day and there's just pressures on us. And so if there's not the opportunity to really give full informed consent for the treatments, whether it's a medication or the downside of prolonged exposure therapy uh, that can be quite dangerous, uh, then ultimately what's going to happen is the lazy ones among us or the burned out docs among us are not going to do it. And they're just going to prescribe medicines and willy-nilly. And even under the best circumstances where our motivation is correct and we're doing things for a good reason, you know, modern medicine keeps changing its mind on what's healthy and safe. You know, like Benadryl was in my first book, you know, the uh, the Combat PTSD in America Toward a Permanent Solution book. And and I put it on there because it was a sleep factor. I'll still take it to fall asleep from from time to time because I have allergies. But it's can it's associated with dementia, you know, not that it causes it directly, but it sedates the mind. And um, who knows what it's doing neurologically to you, but that's not good. And so medications that we take for granted as doctors sometimes have severe side effects. And even if they're rare, when it happens, it's devastating. And we don't want that for any people. And it's it just from time to time, people have bad reactions to, say, Prasocin, the nightmare pill that I give a lot. Some people hate me and think the medicine should be outlawed. I heard that recently from a patient, even though that's my go-to to help people out of the nightmares. It definitely helps way more people than it hurts, but the one that hurts, it hurts bad. So, ugh, that's a mess. So some patients, caregivers, family, friends, as well as as professionals that run into patients with trauma pasts uh, like to know the content of this course. So I've got the table of contents pulled up for the book, and what I'm going to do is talk you through it on today's episode to point out some things and let you know what all is sort of related to post-traumatic stress and its treatment. Okay, chapter one, as usual, is an overview of treatment. And I mentioned in the last episode that the first time that I was in training in the PTSD specialty clinic, the very first veteran that was talking to my uh, teacher, my professor, he, he pissed him off so much the veteran stood up and yelled at him and walked out. It wasn't even five minutes in the room. And so I've got a section called Communicating with Veterans, a skill to be learned. But folks, it's not just veterans. You've got to understand that 87% of PTSD in America is from civilians. And I had to do the math myself because there's a huge 
narrative out there that PTSD is all about veterans and that cuts a lot of people off from getting help because they think it's only for veterans and they don't understand things like the body keeps the scorebook that realizes that all trauma you've faced adds up and people wind up with more of a post-traumatic syndrome than anything else where they mistrust people, they have anxiety, so they avoid, they have trouble with intimacy and relationships and trust. And how many people do you know like that, whether they have a diagnosis of PTSD or not? Okay, so PTSD is a research criteria, and you got to understand that two weeks before the Diagnostic Statistical Manual came out, the NIH, the National Institute of Health, announced that they were not going to support that research anymore. So you got doctors holding on to the old way, which is the diagnostic criteria of observable symptoms in a clinic setting. Folks, it doesn't nearly touch the neurobiology of what's happening in the body of the person that's stressed out. And in a case in point, we've got five different ways to treat blood pressure, but only one of them addresses adrenaline, like the prazosin, propranolol, and clonidine that I'm talking about. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen, okay? And so we want to be a leader in that. So not only is communicating with veterans and people that are sleep-deprived, have head injuries and such, severe depression, uh, bad insomnia, whether it's from sleep apnea that they don't know about, nightmare disorder that they can't remember the dreams, we're missing the boat on a lot of people that have this kind of symptoms and their doctors are very ill-equipped to recognize it, scream for it, much less treat it even if they know what they have. Okay? So it, there's a lot to be said there. You know, it's, it's not just the veterans that need a special talking to. It's all of us when we have a capacity problem. Because remember, you have three things that you need for success or failure in any endeavor. You need the capacity, the opportunity, and the motivation all to be aligned at the same time for the best success. And the biggest mistake I see with poor leadership, whether we're talking medical or in the military, that causes half of the behavioral health problems that I see as a division psychiatrist uh, responsible for the, the behavioral health policies for more than 13,000 troops. Um, what I see is that people automatically assume that somebody that's not doing something right has a motivation problem without any acknowledgement or humble admission or even awareness. It's not even on their radar that it could be something besides a motivation problem, like a capacity or an opportunity problem. We're so narrow-minded. It's a very immature stance, and it's really easy and lazy to yell at someone that's not doing something right without trying to develop a relationship with them first and really communicate and dig down to the issues and figure out what the barriers really are. And very often, the leaders are the ones that are weak, and there's a problem in your leadership. And uh, just like in medicine, we do the same thing. Fibromyalgia is a good example. You know, 10, 20 years ago, when I, even when I was in med school, I graduated in 07, so 13 years ago, uh, and some change. And we kind of, you know, we, we were taught to laugh at fibromyalgia, but they did have one speaker come and talk about chronic fatigue syndrome as a real thing. But the purpose that they, they sent that person to speak to us is because none of us were respecting it at all. And so if someone said, oh, I feel tired all the time, we would say, oh, we've got to exercise. Oh, I have pain all the time. Ah, oh, you're a wimp. That was the mentality, and it still is the mentality of many doctors that were trained a longer period of time ago than some of the uh, newer research that Dr. Russo has published 
for example, in um, endocannabinoid receptor deficiency syndrome. People say, oh, that's controversial. You know, of course it is. Medical marijuana, CBD and hemp oil is controversial because it's very politically uh, connected and there's a lot of lobbyists that go on. So you can see that the subject of getting a therapist or a doctor or a prescriber on the same page with how to communicate with people that have been traumatized is a huge undertaking. It's huge. And so I've got a section in the book I start out with uh, that starts to hack away at that problem so that you understand that it's not always a motivation problem. There's capacity and opportunity things that are not only beyond the scope of what they teach in allopathic Western medical schools, but they are the data is being hidden from you <laughs> you know you're you're being lied to and it, it just irritates me when um when helpful information is kept from people that need the suffering and one way that's done is by pushing a narrative that ptsd is about veterans if that's what you think if that's what you believe you're dead wrong do the math yourself that's what i did i'll publish a, an episode on that okay all right, the next section is uh, in the chapter, still chapter one here. i got a lot to go through. Is treatment goals and emotional fitness. I take the definition of the Army's fitness, which says that your fitness is equal to the amount of energy you have left over at the end of a normal day. If you never push yourself beyond your comfort zone, then you're, you have no fitness. If you're exhausted every night when you go to bed, you have no fitness. And uh, I'm just sick and tired of my patients saying they exercise, and I say, what do you do? And they say, oh, I walk around the block once or twice. That's not exercise. Everybody that had a PE class uh, ought to know what exercise is. So you can't be dishonest with yourself. You can't be dishonest with your doctor to get a disability check. You have to live the right life if you want physical, spiritual, emotional balance. You know, So we got to be honest, and we got to get real and down to brass tacks here if we're going to help people with PTSD. And most doctors don't understand that uh, when it comes to post-traumatic stress disorder, you do have to establish trust in perhaps a different way than we've been trained to. I had a, a doctor I really looked up to tell me that, uh, hey, I don't, I don't have to have had cancer to know how to treat it. But let me tell you what, you, you should probably be on your own trauma recovery journey if you're going to be trying to treat PTSD, you know. And the reason is because if you're not on your own journey, you won't establish the trust and rapport with those people. And the things that you haven't looked at, the shadows, your shadow, shadow self, as the Carl Jungian uh, followers would say, uh, can, can really play a role with you and your objectivity with your patients. There can be a parallel process there and some countertransference. Okay? So I, I disagree that, um, that it's not relevant at all that the patients keep complaining that therapists don't understand what they're going through. So that's another important reason I've created PTSD Academy is that if you're a therapist or a doctor or provider, and I'm kind of offending you right now, look, just go through some of the courses, at least watch the PTSD curriculum, exactly how I teach the PTSD to the patients. So you can just borrow my phrases, take the worksheets right out of the back of this book I'm reading from right now, the warrior class. And, and use that material and just supplement that and go on about your business. That's perfectly fine. But let's don't blame the patients that have capacity and opportunity problems and treat it like it's a motivation problem. Let's stop that because it's very shaming and it's self-defeating and it feeds into the old lies and narratives that we're actually trying to 
get rid of in PTSD treatment. Stop making it worse for the patient. So there's a section on setting expectations, improving quality of life, so that we have a quality of life goal. Because some patients come so defeated, they're like, I don't know what I want, you know. And they're just down and out and have lost and faced so much loss, they don't, they're not handling their losses in life well. There's a book by Judith Vorst called uh, Necessary Losses. And that's a tough one to read because no one wants to read that they have to lose things and let it go before they can embrace what's next. We're trying to hold on to the past because it's too painful. We're afraid to cry, you know. Don't be afraid to cry. All right. Holding it in doesn't mean you're tough. It means you're spending your energy unwisely. <laughs> okay. Safety considerations. We talk about suicide as a crisis of hope. I had a therapist tell me that hope is just a myth. And I'm like, oh, my God. I thought PTSD patients come to you and hope Hope saves people from killing themselves, and you think it's just a, a fantasy or a myth, and it's a lie? Oh my gosh, I don't want to be your patient. You know, that's just a fact. And if you're listening, I don't mean to offend you, but I'm going to stand my ground, because I think I know a little bit about what I'm talking about with PTSD. Okay? Then I go into suicide risk and protective factors. There's not a lot of them, but they're they're good and interesting. I'm sure you know what they are already if you're a professional but that's in the course. Uh, things like being connected to family, having kids, having a faith worldview system that's positive and has a low view of, um, of you know, killing yourself or ending life early. I can tell you that you're not really going to find much peace and happiness if you have a lifestyle that uh, it brings about warfare and the harm and destruction of others. You know, I was, was involved with a 12-step fellowship for more than half of my adult life. And I'm still off alcohol for 29 years, but I don't go to the meetings so much anymore. Well, I once sponsored an atheist that went to the group. But at the end of the meetings, we tended to pray the, the Lord's Prayer, the one that says, Our Father who art in heaven, and hold hands in a circle and say this. And we're basically wishing goodwill towards other people. And um, after about maybe four months of coming to meetings, he just said, I can't keep coming to these meetings. I'm like, why? He's like, because the prayer we do at the end, it's it's praying to God and it's asking for help and happiness for other people. He's like, I can't do that. He he shared with me that he literally sat around and they practiced the telepathy. Some of the stuff I teach in energy healing modalities here at PTSD Academy, now that I know what he was doing. But they use it for ill. They put curses on people and they practice and train to do that. So, you know. The, the West and um, Judeo-Christian values would say, oh, be careful with words like yoga and be careful with um, talking about interpersonal telepathy like electromagnetic waves and um, picking up the second heartbeat from one person to another, such as demonstrated in the I Am documentary when they went out to the Heart Math Institute. And uh, be, be careful with that stuff because it, it can be satanic or something like that. Well, the Satanists would love that answer because they're using it. It's just how we're made. We are created and connected with quantum physics into this, into this, you know, creation, this universe. We're connected to things, and the science is there. The documentaries are bubbling over, but there are huge powers to be that don't want you to know this kind of information because guess what? You won't be as reliant on a pill or counseling sessions. And as therapists, as providers, you need to understand that the majority of post-traumatic treatment that's happening in the United States, at least since 9-11, 2001, is not coming into the mainstream. The America is leaving and not trusting Western medicine. We're so behind. And so I'm 
going to try to bridge the gap when we eventually get to chapter five here. Okay, medical legal issues. So I've been in, what, 16 minutes into the podcast, and I've only covered some of the topics in chapter one of this course. <laughs> so I'm going to speed things up a little bit, not to bore you too much. Chapter two is about the acute phase treatment of post-traumatic stress right after a trauma, what to do and what not to do. And chapter three is about the chronic phase of PTSD. So that's more traditionally what you would think of as far as cognitive processing therapy goes. But in chapter two, I talk about traumatic event management, nonviolent crisis intervention, psychotherapies that work for acute post-traumatic stress, and medication therapy, and I go into doses. I'm just transparent with the way I teach, in my, and so I don't try to tell you this is what you should prescribe. I can't take on that risk. Only you doctors out there will know exactly what, you, what your patients can handle, given a whole lot of other factors. Probably 200 other factors go into your mind in a moment to decide what to try with someone. And I can tell you that about half of my medication decision-making is about how much does this patient trust me? If they are brand new to counseling and medications and therapy, I gotta be extra careful not to give them a side effect. If they don't take medicines and the first thing I do is go too high with the dose, they're never coming back. So it's a delicate dance that I do in my clinic to give people enough to really help them, but don't go too fast. So basically we taper up every medicine and we taper down when we stop every medicine. No abrupt starts and stops of medication, if at all possible. So I go into those in, in, in detail here in the course. In chapter three, we have the chronic phase of treatment. Like I said, we'll talk about the psychotherapies that work and psychoeducation. So what I've done is I've taken the motivational interview model that says you're pre-contemplative, contemplative, you know, preparatory action and maintenance and whatever. So, you know, you can't take the alcoholic that doesn't want to stop drinking to a three-month inpatient program. They're going to be like, no, I don't want to be here. So you can't sell the Cadillac to someone that's looking for a Pinto, you know. So meet them where they are. And what I've done is I've broken down the psychoeducation resources by four different levels. And the levels are this. Level one is someone who's not ready to participate in PTSD therapy. That person would look at you, uh, you know, kind of standoffish, maybe with their arms folded in front of them, not a lot of eye contact, and doesn't look happy to be there. And you say, hey, what brings you today? And they say, oh, my wife made me come. Okay, that's level one. Well, many times we're trying to push that person too far in, in mainstream medicine. And some of that was why, why my first um, encounter in the PTSD clinic went so poorly and the big veteran yelled at us because, you know, he wasn't ready for some of that and he started off telling him what he wasn't going to do for him and stopped telling him what he could do for him. And so it was a mismatch on that, on that stages of change. It comes right out of motivational interviewing. Level two is where the person is only thinking about participating in PTSD therapy. So this is contemplative, okay? Pre-contemplative and contemplative, it matches up. But there's only four stages here. And then I really want to judge things with action. Action is what matters. So level three is someone is just starting to participate in PTSD therapy. So maybe they went to a few things or read a few things. They're taking some little bit of action. And then you got those that are level four actively participating in some kind of treatment. And they're they have accepted internally. They don't take on the shame uh, of the stigma of mental health and, 
and they don't have the the old limiting beliefs that getting help for yourself is a sign of weakness. They have already received some benefits of getting treatment, and that's why they're there. And they're you can't run them off with a little medication side effect. They're going to come back. And so that's what I tell my patients is don't just disappear if you don't like the medications. Uh, keep taking your medicines and keep complaining to your doctor. Just call me the next day. Show up. Uh, come back every week. Let's let's keep you in the box because I have a lot of options at my disposal. And even though we, you've been through three or four or five medicines or more, that doesn't mean I don't have a place in a flow chart in my mind of what to do with you next. And uh, I hate to see it when people's medications don't work out. And, uh, and so do some responsible prescribing. If you're a prescriber and you're not sure about what to do for PTSD, you want some more confidence, then this course is for you. It's called PTSD Treatment. And I've coded it as a uh, mental thing because you're going to learn a lot of things, the educational approach very much. But I also coded this program as spiritual because if you're interested in improving your treatment delivery for PTSD, that's a vocation. That's a labor of love. That is all about your purpose in life. And you must believe that you're doing something important. And that falls under the spiritual category. Remember, my spiritual category, as I make it up, has three things in it. It has purpose, it has energy healing modalities, and it has faith or worldview work, something along those lines. And so if, if you like PTSD work and this is the kind of work you want to do and you're maybe you're an up-and-coming therapist or in college or brand new out of school and you're like, oh, I want to be a good PTSD therapist, that's definitely a spiritual thing and it's going to give you some juice. You know, make you feel warm and fuzzy and happy for a while. And so be responsible and do responsible prescribing, okay? Uh, to round out that chapter three, I go into cognitive processing therapy, prolonged exposure therapy, and I have a separate podcast I hope you've listened to called Prolonged Exposure. If not, go back. I think it's early on, like around episode six or something. I don't remember specifically, but search the website, find those early podcasts because I'm a... I'm not a fan of prolonged exposure unless in very specific, rare circumstances. It should not be let off with as a, a go-to. And I see people being harmed by it all the time, and uh, I just think it's wrong. All right, so I'm going to take a very strong stance. I may even make the statements bolder than they actually are, just to penetrate that run from prolonged exposure. And I think I'm doing you a favor. Let people give you options. If, if all they know is prolonged exposure, then you're not going to a sophisticated enough therapist. Period. Period. That's just the wrong thinking. All right. And then lastly, I have the medication therapy for chronic PTSD, where we go into most of the meds being non-FDA approved. But there are a couple that are Paxil and um, Sertraline. Okay, chapter four is called Life After PTSD Treatment. Let's say someone does get on some meds that work uh, for sleep and mood, and then they do some therapy and they get some relief. So then you're at chapter four, Life After PTSD Treatment, and that's broken into a discussion of if whether or not PTSD can be cured or not. I don't really like that word. Uh, when symptoms are tied to compensation, so much of our PTSD research comes from the veteran population, yet... They are incentivized to lie because as soon as they start saying they're feeling better, their money gets cut down. And and many veterans who come in to me and say outright, yeah, I'm here because I got this letter in the mail. Or they'll tell me, don't write that in the chart, doc. You know, and so it, it, it sets up a, uh, 
a dilemma there where all the research we get from the VA is tainted, and that's half the research we have on the planet. So this is why we're stuck, people, because we have a compensation system. And I will complain about that, and I'm going to be very vocal because I'm an advocate for the warriors. And here's my view. I can only complain because I'm offering a solution to the problem, and that is this. I don't believe a veteran who's fought for their country from any country on the planet should ever have to prove to their government that war hurt them on the inside. That the burden of proof should not be on the veteran. The mental health care services or whatever disability compensation system you've constructed, if you're a blessed, fortunate enough capitalist democratic country like we are in America that could provide for such a thing like that and actually have Judeo-Christian values to care for the orphan and the widow in their time of need. You know, that's what the Bible in the Old Testament says that God's only definition of real religion is to care for the widow and the orphan in the time of need. President Abraham Lincoln's quote came from the Bible. Okay. And that set up and, and started the whole VA services, which it's a cabinet level position with a, a cabinet secretary that speaks directly to the president. Okay. So all I'm trying to say is that when you set up a system where a veteran has to prove that they've been injured on the inside, then you're never going to get quality data. So here on page 40 in chapter 4, I talk about that. But I, I have a couple of uh, insights now, and I share them in chapter 5, but they, they weren't there uh, four years ago when I wrote this book. And, and that is, I don't really use the word cured anymore for PTSD. I use the word restored. And that is because if you could learn to do some activities that are physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional for you and healthy, at the same time, like take a veteran fishing or take your kid to the park and exercise with them. It's physical. It's mental. If you um, maybe talk about something or listen to an audio book on the way or teach them something along the way to make it mentally sharp, you know, and uh, it's emotional. If you talk and connect and have a safe, loving environment with your child and a spiritual purpose of raising a child for the next generation is, is all kinds of purpose. If you can do an activity that's all four at the same time, you will feel better. You will feel like your old self, you know, and the Jungians out there. See, Sigmund Freud had a student, Carl Jung, and they differed on some things. And ultimately, I believe they really differed on the spirit where Sigmund Freud took a very atheist view. Jung said, no, there's a dark side of us. There's a spiritual, you know, unseen force that he called the shadow force that is all of our uh, sort of evil desires and wants. And the people that ignore that they have it and try to keep it in the back of their mind and suppress it like a shadow are being controlled by it. And the answer is to not throw it in the back and ignore it and hide it from people, but to bring your shadow out, you know. And so there are other religions in the Bible talks about that too, um, that you should um, glory in your weakness for then the God is made strong. And so we should humble ourselves, and that gives us strength. Um, but larger than a religious view, what the point I'm trying to make is that you can try to ignore that there's good and evil in you, uh, and and it's to your own detriment if you ignore it. Okay. And so I think this is very much true um, when you have a compensation system set up 
that financially incentivizes people to lie. We're never going to get good data. Now, if you're trying to let people be hurt and stay in the dark and never get the answers, that's, that's how you would design a system. Set it up where people are in the dark and quiet and silence and no one has hope. Hmm. I'm not saying it's on purpose, but uh, let me just stop there. <laughs> I'll tell you in a private teleconference a little bit more if you ask. All right. Chapter five. Problems with recovery. And I discuss capacity, opportunity, and motivation here with relate, you know, that's how I organize different problems that people have. And what I'm talking about in chapter five of this course is people that have done your classes and they've taken the medicines and they've tried some different things and it's still not working. They're still having problems. What could it possibly be? And if you just train here at the PTSD Academy and do more than just this one course for professionals, you'll see that we probably shouldn't wait until we've done only the mainstream before we start asking these questions because people need to be more proactive in their own life and lifestyle, healthcare, way longer, way before, you know, before you get to this point. And for me, it was kind of miraculous that right after school and I did the nonprofit and started the PTSD program, that I did not launch the PTSD Academy then. And the best example I have is this a caregiver's guide that, that I'm reading from right now. It had a complimentary book that the patients would get. And on the cover is a picture of a stock photo I picked. And it's someone with a hoodie on. You can't see their face. And they're holding a pistol aimed right at the camera. A very triggering image. And I didn't know to leave out, you know, trauma stories. I didn't know that we carry an energy and a vibration and our thoughts and intentions are way more powerful than we've been led to believe. And I didn't know that leaving out the trauma account and the details of the specific things that hurt us in the past uh, results in just as effective therapies. So I would have been hurting people inadvertently, even though I'm very passionate and trying not to, if I had done it right away. So I don't push that book. It is still available out there. But in chapters six and seven is all the handouts that those patients would get. It's basically the same book. So don't buy the one that's for the individuals. Just get the warrior class, the caregiver's guide. And if you want to share the worksheets in the back, just make as many copies of that as you want. And that's the easiest way to do it. So that brings me to chapter six. Let me just read some of the handouts that I would give. I'm going to read all of them for you right out of the table of contents. And I had the education broke into inpatient stabilization because I had an inpatient program at East Texas Medical Center and I had an outpatient program, which was basically an int intensive outpatient program where people would come for a minimum of 15 hours per week. And they would be involved with an average of six weeks uh, to get through all this material. And now you can watch all the videos in one day. So there's no need for it to take that long. I always thought that was ridiculously slow. So online courses like this are much better for people who don't like group therapy, don't want to hear the war stories, don't want to hear people exaggerating or lying about what they've been through or seeking some kind of sick pleasure and shocking people with gory details. If you want to avoid all that crap, uh, then go to PTSD Academy because you won't hear one trauma story at all. All right. So if you're a therapist, you can go in any order you want. I'm just showing you what I did. And if any of these worksheets are helpful for you, good. Uh, I, I realized I needed to do 
my own book when I was in an inpatient PTSD program. And uh, I, I did two electives while I was in training. And one of the master social worker therapists handed out a worksheet from a website, afterdeployment.org, and it had something incorrect and written wrong on the on the uh, handout. And it was about thoughts and reactions and feelings. It was kind of important. And uh, I recognized right away that it was incorrect. And I listened to her talk, and she didn't realize it. And And I just sat there going, oh, my gosh, it's supposed to matter here. This is the best place. This is supposed to be world class. And you haven't even taken the time to put your own content together. Instead, you just take the easy way out and print off of some website where you can't verify the source. And it's wrong. And um, in the course, uh, if you'll take the video course, this PTSD treatment one, I actually will go into how that was covering up the most invisible wound of all. Like that was not a simple mistake that day. I didn't know it at the time. But in my research, it led me to realize that you have to avoid doing that thing, those kind of things. Don't take any shortcuts. So if you don't have decent handouts for your PTSD therapy patients, get a copy of this book, watch the videos one time through. I'm fast and elegant and quick about it. It's not many, many hours. And uh, maybe later we'll add continuing education credits to the course if this, if you guys would support that. Uh, but for now, um, feel free to just use these handouts, handouts themselves. They've been vetted. I vetted them. I wrote them myself. So here's the list. In Chapter 6, Extinction Burst, Biology of PTSD, Insomnia and Nightmares, Normal Reactions to Trauma, Cognitive Distortions, and that one's got about 22 different ones listed and defined, not a short list of 5 or 10 like you usually see. It's the most thorough list I could make. Guilt and Shame, Moral Injury, Physical Health and Nutrition, Avoidance, Blind Spots and Communication, and an Introduction to Trauma Work. So I begin to, to, to talk about what the trauma sheet's going to work look like and start to prepare them for what's going to happen when we really do what we call the trauma work. But before they would get out of the hospital, I would get them to do the last one, which is called the end state. They were going to visualize what they were working for and write it down for when times get hard. And then chapter seven was much shorter because it's a repetitive cycle to work on the stuck points for cognitive processing therapy. So there's a stuck point log, a trauma worksheet, peer affirmation forms that are meant to be handed out at the very beginning. If you're running a group, uh, then then you want all your members to sit there with a piece of paper and a pen and listen to each other. And anytime they think of something kind or a compliment or an affirmation while they're listening to their partner in the group go through their trauma work, then they write it down. So they're taking notes of positive things about their peers the entire time. And so that at the end, when that person graduates, they they read it all to them and give it all to them. It would have been way more powerful had we done it that way in my inpatient programs where I trained. So uh, that's what I adopted when I started my own hospital program. Okay. And then last is an aftercare plan, our very thorough one-page worksheet there. So take it or leave it, uh, but that is the warrior class. Uh, and by warrior, I don't mean a veteran or a military first responder type. I mean someone that's, you know, going out of their way and taking on personal risk to themselves, such as the extinction burst here, to try to make the world a better place. Because we're not about just 
feeling better so you can stay home and eat ice cream and fast food and watch movies and not live. No, you do this kind of work and you're going to wake up again. Instead of having your energy, your chi scattered from trauma and having the shadow force dominate you, your physical, mental, spiritual, and emotional health are the pieces that are going to come back together and fit like a perfect puzzle so that you can feel like yourself again. And the moment that happens, you're going to start getting visions of what you want to do next. That's just how we're designed. And trauma just scatters all that and shatters it. So this course is called the Warrior Class because it is made to put the pieces back together.